I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to another week of Anatomy of an Artist. My guest this week is Bill Des, professionally known as Two Feet. Two Feet is a prolific artist, songwriter, and producer who has amassed over a billion streams and organically built an extremely loyal fan base. In this conversation, we got to catch up and talk about how he built his project independently, his experience in and out of the major label system, and how ultimately what's most important to him is the freedom and autonomy to create the music he wants to create, and how the release of that music is necessary and cathartic. I hope you guys enjoy. How are you? Where in the world are you located? I am in LA at the moment. Um, I moved here about uh, 10 or 11 months ago. How has the transition from, because you were New York before that? Yeah, um, New York my whole life. Uh, it's been good. I mean, I like it. There's way more space, you know, I can make sounds without getting, you know, neighbors complained, you know, no matter how big your space is in New York, any like any sound at all will uh, annoy people. So yeah, I feel like I think I'm gonna stay in New York forever. But you know, everyone says that. And then eventually we all move to LA. So I'll move. I said that for the longest time. I mean, I was born in Manhattan. I grew up there and, uh, you know, I, I just never thought I was going to leave, but, uh, I don't know, just, you know, I had moved like seven times in like five years because of how many noise complaints I would get. The cops would come to my apartment and like, it started feeling like, like it was stunting my creativity. And, uh, you know, I had a bunch of friends out here and I was like, whatever, I'll just go out for like a year or two. And that's still the plan for sure. I mean, it does not have the same vibe as New York at all. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that probably as New Yorkers, like my goal is to always have a a foot planted here and then another foot planted wherever I want to be. And so I think that that's definitely my long term goal. And I've had like tastes of it, like the bi-coastal living and then obviously COVID and I've just been here. Growing up in New York, what was your idea of success? What did you envision yourself doing? Uh, I always envisioned, honestly, success was very different when I was younger, you know, especially when I thought about music. To me, it was just like, uh, you know, being able to make a living uh, playing shows. For whatever reason, when you grow up in New York, you're like very encapsulated in it. So to you, it's the whole world. Um, Like, for example, the first time I left New York City as a kid, and we started driving out on the highway in New Jersey. My first, like, you know, actual memory of it, I was like shocked that there weren't like buildings everywhere. Like, as soon as we got out, I was like, really, like, holy crap, there's not like just buildings. It's just like there's like a farmland, whatever. So it's like in my head as a kid, when I thought of being a musician, I was just like playing nightclubs in New York and like, you know, uh, stuff like that. That's kind of like all I had ever. I didn't think about like the rest of the world and touring and all that. When you started playing music, were you playing like the kind of club circuit in New York? Um, yeah, so <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny. We were playing, we just playing like 
uh, weird little like warehouse stuff my friends would set up, you know what I mean? Like where uh, they were so DIY, you know, you didn't know if only you and your friends were going to show up or if like sometimes, you know, randomly like 200 people you didn't know all of a sudden must have heard about and showed up, you know, like those kind of like wonderful, like random events that happened in New York where all of a sudden turned into a party, you know, either out in Brooklyn or in some weird like little place in Chinatown. So that's kind of like how uh, me and my friend uh, Huff started, you know, playing like shows. And I guess that was 2015, 2014, 2015, 2016, stuff like that. When did you start playing guitar? I started playing guitar as a little kid, but I guess I didn't take it seriously until I was probably 19 or 20, 19 or 20. Well, I guess I'll ask, were you a guitarist first and foremost? Was that your first instrument before vocals or did all of that kind of come together? Yeah, guitar was definitely first. Um, You know, when I was a kid in New York, it was kind of like, uh, it was like considered like, which is so stupid, but it was considered like lame to try. So like <laughs> singing, like if you said, you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it was yeah. it's considered like, yeah, like nowadays kids are like, oh, it's cool to try. Like, you know, the younger, like 16 year old, everyone's like, I'm doing this and this. And everyone's like, you know, it's cool. You're doing activism and, you know, you're trying to do this or whatever. When I was a kid, it was like, if you're trying to do anything, like that's the lamest thing ever. Like no one wanted to talk to you. So like, I would, I would sing by myself, like slowly, but I never showed anybody it. Um, and I definitely even really never showed anyone besides like kids who would come over and hang out that I played guitar and that would only be for like two seconds, you know, if they would ask about it. Uh, so guitar was first and then vocals slowly started coming in. And then as soon as I left high school and I, I like didn't care about any of those people anymore, that's when I like really kind of like settled on singing and writing songs and all that stuff. That's such an apt observation that, you know, the times were different and this idea of like being hyper ambitious and trying and like I was one of those people who was like always trying and I was highly unpopular, quite frankly, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. And now that's that's so praised. Right. And now it's almost the opposite. If you're not trying, what the fuck are you doing? Right. I've just never thought of it like that. They're lucky, the younger kids now. That's like uh, they lucked into that. We, We were kind of left with the residual you know, Generation X, you know, lazy, fair, like, just let the world come as it is. Don't try to do anything cool. You know, nothing matters anyway. We kind of left with the residual (laughs) of that, like, you know, jackass MTV, who cares type thing. It's interesting being a guitarist and vocalist. Did you see a, a path forward for yourself as an artist? Or did you envision a future where you would kind of be the quintessential sideman? Yeah, that's a really good question, honestly. Um, I always envisioned myself, if, okay, so yeah, if, it, you know, if music worked out for me when I was a kid, when I would envision it, I, you know, it was always as if I was going to be like a songwriter or a producer for other people. You know, you always have that random like, oh, maybe, you know, I could do, you know, be the guy on the stage with the microphone in front of all the people, but like, that's not really um what I like envisioned happening and and it's kind of not really what I wanted I I sort of wanted just like a normal I don't know I just wanted to be like you know Brian Wilson or you know uh you know some of my favorite producers who just kind of sat behind the scenes and and then and made stuff so 
I wouldn't say this was the exact image I had for myself. Yeah, of uh, like where my career would go. So I'm curious, the Berkeley effect. Yes. Right. Positive, <laughs> negative. Right. Obviously, you dropped out after half a semester or full semester or after not that uh, much time. Half a semester. Yeah, I was. I actively went to classes for about six weeks. So tell me the positives and negatives of music school. Obviously, there was a negative because you dropped out. Yeah. Um, all right. So the positives, you know, um, you know, from the most basic standpoint, you know, I definitely learned in those six weeks, you know, some scale stuff that was useful and that I still practice sometimes on the guitar and, you know, basic ear training things and, you know, how to open up a DAW and get like basic work done with it and stuff like that. Uh, that was a positive. Um, a negative of it is, you know, it just immediately seemed to me like um, they were obsessed with, have you ever heard like the term, like you, you must like musician porn or producer porn. Yeah, like yeah. it's just like, you know, musicians, music, like stuff like just musicians are into like, and that's not actually like good, but like, it's so technically amazing that like people who study that stuff find it cool. You know, it seemed like that was a place to go if you wanted to be that kind of musician. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, look how many chords like can fit into this, you know, B section of this song. Isn't that amazing? And it's like, you know, no, I don't really care. Like, uh, so I, I sensed that right away and I didn't like that. And I didn't like how, you know, they tried to make music um, into like, you know, humans love regimenting, you know, of trying to overanalyze creative outlets. And they tried to compartmentalize each like step of like how to become a better musician and how to learn. and you know, how that would lead to your career. And I just like, I, I totally was disconnected with that. Um, I, I, I found it really dumb, I, in just counterintuitive. And so, you know, as soon as I sensed that's where like my life would head if I stayed there, I was like, I gotta go. And I just pretty much left. When you left Berkeley, what was your perception of the music industry? Did you have a vision of a path forward of what it would take to be an artist or how did you see that business? Yeah, so I guess my perception of the music industry was, um, you know, basically I think, I think I came to the conclusion that, you know, what they were teaching there, how to get into the music industry wasn't necessarily wrong, but it was how to get into like an aspect of the music industry I didn't want to be in, like the business side or, or you know, like work your way up in this really meticulous kind of like cutthroat way. And I was like, I don't want to enter it that way. So, you know, what one thing I learned there that was positive was I discovered um, SoundCloud in like 2013. And I realized quickly, you know, if I could learn how to produce something that took off or did really well on SoundCloud, if I got really involved with the scene on SoundCloud, you know, that would be a natural path into the music industry. And I was like, I don't need any of this other stuff. If I can just get a song, an original song to do really well on SoundCloud, you know, I can enter the music industry that way. So that was my like kind of epiphany moment. And then that became all that I focused on was making connections and friends and joining a scene of music I liked on SoundCloud, which is, you know, why I like basically completely neglected all the schoolwork. So my perception at the time was very limited. 
um, you know, especially in comparison to everything I know now about the music industry. Um, but I did know, you know, you have to get involved in a scene. You have to trust your gut. Uh, you just need one song to do well to get noticed in the way you want and, you know, just follow that path. So that was my goal I formulated while I was there. I was like, I just want to get big on SoundCloud. And I kind of took that route. I feel like 2013 to 2015 SoundCloud was a golden era for, you know, what has become the streaming revolution at this point right now, everything is digital. And so that like hype machine era of like, I think it was the first time in the music industry that the gates were down, right? It's there, there were really no gatekeepers and it, there was an ability for like individuals to be curators um, in a really beautiful way. And for listeners to essentially choose what they want to listen to versus being fed what they want to listen to by radio and, you know, essentially labels. Um, Exactly. I'm interested, this is like a slight sidebar. We've obviously now seen the gates reappear in terms of streaming and digital distribution. Where do you see the challenges of streaming for artists now? versus back when you started in 2013, 14, 15? Yeah, so, you know, I think one of the main things is lack of online scene that's cohesive and all in the same place now. You know, um, people are always talking about there's no more monoculture, and that's true. But for a moment there, those years that you were talking about, um, you know, there was this cohesive musical, independent, non-signed artist scene on SoundCloud. And that made it pretty easy to, you know, if, if you connected with everybody and not even like on a, you know, networking sense, just if you made a song that really connected with everybody or a lot of people on there, um, you could have natural streaming growth, which would then lead to, uh, you know, streaming growth on Spotify and lead to, you know, having booking shows and all that stuff and you know you could rely on all your friends and all the SoundCloud community to push you to that level right so that was a really great entryway for artists who had no connections to get into the industry you know countless number of my friends entered that way you know I entered that way through my first you know uh, EP is two feet and I think uh, it's you know SoundCloud's uh, user base has diminished like 50 or 60% or more, I think, something like that. I think they might only have like 25% of the amount of people they did in like 2015, 2016. And it's like the elimination of that platform and that community and that scene definitely makes it much harder. And as you said, the gates are up again um, for unknown artists to break through. You know, now the only thing they can really rely on and pray on and hope for is that one of their songs you know, goes viral on TikTok or, um, you know, just is so high quality and so good that labels won't ignore it. Uh, You know, that's extremely hard um, for a young artist to accomplish. You have no money, you have no, you know, real way of building a studio out and all that stuff. You do have a DAW, but that still has limitations. Um, So I think the biggest problem is that just the lack of an online, cohesive online, you know, community that helps smaller artists branch out you know tiktok is just like you know (laughs) yeah it's beautiful it helps a lot of artists but it's dark um yeah i mean personally you know i have fun on that app there's so many funny videos i like going on there to waste some time 
But, um, you know, that's just like one in a million shot. You know, it's not nearly as likely as, you know, putting out a really good EP on SoundCloud in the prime SoundCloud days and, you know, having like a modest reaction, but enough to build a career. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the main issues for younger or newer artists now. I want to like tap into virality because obviously your first single, Go Fuck Yourself, was highly, highly mm-hmm. viral. And so I'm curious between the time that you left Berkeley and that song went viral, like what was your hustle, like both professionally, like how were, how were you, you know, making your living? And then creatively, like, did you have a plan or a strategy to make that go viral? Was it a numbers game? Was it more exploratory and just like throwing shit up and seeing how it reacted? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, my family uh, doesn't come from, they're very intellectual people, but we don't come from a lot of money. So, you know, I couldn't, um, I got a scholarship, almost a full scholarship to Berkeley. And as soon as I left there, my dad was extremely upset with me because he had no other way for me to pay for, you know, anything. So I had to get a job when I moved to New York and he would give me some money whenever he could. Um, and so I had a job as a cashier for about two years. Um, I would work, you know, sometimes from 12 o'clock at night until nine o'clock in the morning, or I would work, you know, just whenever they called me in almost every day, 12 hour days, usually, um, up in Harlem on like 125th street and Broadway. And, um, you know, I just did that. And when I had my off time in my little studio apartment, I would, you know, produce and talk to my friends on SoundCloud. And I did that for about two years, you know, um, I don't want to sound this starving artist cliche and all that bullshit, but you know, I was a younger kid, early twenties and it kind of was like that, you know, some days I'd have a can of tuna and a coffee and, you know, save 75 cents to get a beer. I'd just take a beer from the deli I worked at. And, uh, you know, I lived like that pretty much for two years. I didn't have enough to ride on the subway downtown to visit friends. Um, you know, I would be scraping by by like, you know, the couple of cents I'd collect in my debit account whenever I like, take money out, like kind of be like, I hope there's enough in there for something tonight, stuff like that. So I lived like that for pretty much two years. And, you know, you said a numbers game. It, it was pretty much a numbers game. I didn't have any management. I had no label. I had no one reaching out to me. I just kept making friends and I kept putting out different styles of music, you know, um, and slowly, you know, my sound sort of started forming itself. You know, I got like the electronic bass from trying to make house music and I I figured out how to do drums well, but trying to make hip hop and stuff like that. And slowly the sound started to form. Uh, One day I was like, I'm going to start a new project. And I made, you know, Go Fuck Yourself really quickly, like over the course of a day, uh, because a really simple song when you listen to it. And um, not thinking much of it, just maybe this will react well on SoundCloud. And, you know, the second I put it out, it started going pretty viral and building up on itself. And then I had labels reaching out to me. And, you know, the rest of the story is kind of just, you know, history, I guess, with my fans and everything like that. But, uh, you know, that's kind of how that time period went. And that's kind of how, you know, everything started for me in a professional sense. When you had kind of the bidding war and all of these labels reaching out. How did you navigate who were the right members to add to your team and who were the right partners for that moment? Because obviously I'm assuming like the broader aspects of your team, management, legal, agent, you know, got built out relatively quickly. 
Yeah. So the answer to that is I didn't, you know, <laughs> I've had, uh, I've had four management teams, uh, different management teams since that point. And that was only about five years ago. Uh, and, you know, I've gone through, you know, I, I'm still building it out now, you know, it's still just a guessing game. You know, I hope this works. You know, I like this song, you know, I try to, you know, focus myself and just focus on the music whenever I can. Cause that's really all I fucking care. I don't know if I can curse, but yeah, that's really all I care about on, um, at the end of the day, I don't give a shit about any of this other stuff. Um, but I'm still, I'm still building it out, out now. Like any good fortune I had was pretty much just kind of like dumb luck. Uh, I'm getting a little more pointed and focused and I like the team I have around me now and it's starting to feel really natural and, you know, comfortable and I'm, I'm friendly and, you know, approve of what everyone's doing around me. But yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely didn't know who to pick. Uh, it's taken me a while and I'm, I'm still kind of learning, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the best answer I can have to that. <laughs> Without throwing anyone under the bus, what do you think are things that haven't worked in certain working relationships? Like, what are things that you've found that it's just like, okay, this dynamic doesn't work for me? Yeah, uh, people who, this is going to sound really, really stupid, but I hate people <laughs> no. who use like dumb platitudes and cliches. I can't work with people who use dumb. If, if anyone says to me, you know, I thought we were on the same page or, you know, that's not a good look, uh, you know, shit like that. I can't stand that because to me, it tells me like that person's not thinking. So it sounds shallow, but it's not because it just means to me like, OK, you're just doing everything by the book. Like, I can't handle you. Uh, you know, another thing I, I couldn't stand is, you know, people just, uh, you know, management just going out of their way to try to make money off of every little thing, you know. Um, I'm super against that, you know, like milking fans in any way that they can, um, type stuff like that, or taking every single fucking show, even if it's like torturous, just to make an extra couple thousand dollars after all the expenses and stuff. Like, I don't, I can't handle that correctly. And I, I can't handle people trying to set up my release schedule of music for me. I fired like two managers over them trying to control when I put out music, how long it should be delayed and all that stuff. Uh, there's a bunch of things. I mean, I would say that any younger musician listening to this, just like, you know, if anyone tries to convince you that you need them to be successful, you don't and don't listen to them and just totally trust your gut on when you want to put out music. Your intuition is what got you to where you are. Keep following it. It's not going to mess with you. Yeah, that's really interesting because I feel I've been with my manager now for, God, five years, like since the very beginning. Wow. and. And it's one of those dynamics where like we've really been able to grow together in a lot of ways, but she goes down these wild tangents with me of just like, yo, this is what I want to explore now. This is the plan I have set out. And her response is always just like, yeah, cool. Let's learn about that. Right. Cool. Let's go. Let's try. And, and I think the idea that management is a, it's a partnership, right? right? It's yeah. a partnership where like you have different skills. Like I'm, you know, really organized in some ways and other ways, everything is a mess. I feel like finding a manager is the closest thing I'll ever have to a marriage, right? right? And it's just this idea of you need someone to do the things that you don't do well, but also let you do exactly what you need to do. Because at the end of the day, it's the artistry that matters. And it's your relationship with fans and right. your fans. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, I, it sounds like, you know, you lucked out when you found your manager 
And I've had, I have some friends who lucked out too. They've had the same manager for six years, have a great relationship yeah. with them. That totally happens. Um, you know, that just didn't happen to me. Um, but right now, as I said, I am really happy with my current team. This is the longest I've been with a management company too. So that's always great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it depends on, you know, some people find the right person right away. Other people got to battle through a couple people to find the right person. It's, you know, it always depends, but yeah, it is a partnership. You're exactly right. And, you know, if, 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 if it's not working that way with you and them, it's just, you know, it, you, it, you know, it's your career, it's your life. You can't just settle for it because it's easy to just like not have to fire somebody and find a new management team and everything's disorganized for a bit. You know, if, if, if it's not working out, it's not working out. It's not worth it. Well, yeah, I think that early on I had like a few experiences just with people, you know, as, as you navigate. I had the profound experience realizing that everyone else goes home and they don't think of me, exactly. right? I've never been signed to a label. But the team members, they go home and, and they're not thinking about me and the music and, and Verite 24-7, but I am, exactly. right? That's I breathe that shit. And so I think that having that recognition was actually really healthy for me because it kind of allowed me to be, I guess, a little self-centered in that way of just like, this is my world. Right. And I'm in charge of uh, its success and or its failure. Exactly. But I'm curious. So obviously you wound up signing to a label, signing to Republic. Since then, you've transitioned into independence. Welcome to the wonderful yes. world of independence. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> but... What was the benefit of signing to Republic when you did? And then what were the unintended, maybe negative consequences of kind of being under the thumb of a label? Well, to be completely honest with you, you know, by the time I signed to Republic, um, <clears throat> Go Fuck Yourself already had like over 100 million streams. Love is a Bitch was already out and had, you know, almost 100 million or 70 million or something like that. And I was making a lot of money because I owned those records. They were released by Majestic Casual, but it was like a, you know, 70-30 split. And, you know, I, I already have the records back um, and stuff like that. So, you know, I kind of went into Republic thinking it was going to be similar until I saw the deals. But, you know, I had management at the time who was kind of an old school guy, uh, worked at a label, was very much a company man, uh, and kind of convinced me, like, you know, this is the best, you know, these guys will push you super hard and all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, listening to his advice, I signed with them. And, you know, I have to say as a, they're pretty much, they're a pretty front runner label. Um, and they did a good job. You know, I feel like I'm drowning, which is my first release with them. Um, hit number one on radio, uh, alt radio. And, um, you know, it's almost 200 million streams now and all that's great. Um, you know, and it's kind of rare to have a success that quick with a major and everything. Um, but other than that, you know, I kept asking, you know, how much, you know, I had a number one on radio. It's got almost, you know, 100, it's got 150 million streams. Like how much of my, you know, how, how much am I recouped? You know, when am I going to start seeing checks? And, you know, when the answer comes back to you that you owe the label more money than, you know, you were even advanced from all these like miscellaneous, you know, expenses that aren't transparent and clear. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I started getting pretty furious with them 
And, you know, they would push me to do you know, a million radio shows and this and that. And if I didn't listen, then they'd be sour. And, you know, anything would take weeks to get approval on. And, and I like to move quick. And, you know, they prevented me from releasing music for months, which for me isn't healthy, um, you know, as a creative person to be kind of pulled up like that. And so, you know, the negatives far outweighed uh, the positives. And, uh, you know, then the breaking point kind of came. I was hospitalized. I have a very various mental health problems. You know, I take medication now and everything's all good. It's been good for almost three years. I'm way better. But before I was on medication, you know, I had a mental health kind of breakdown and I ended up, you know, in a psych ward, uh, you know, involuntarily by the state of New York. I wasn't allowed to leave unless they approved all this stuff. It was, you know, I, I made it super dramatic, you know, and everything. And when I got out, you know, even though I had a hit record with them and everything like that, they basically refused to promote or let me release any of my own music for like a really long time. Um, you know, and my publicist, my own private publicist, not the one that I got with the label, told me that, you know, he was asking like, how come you're not promoting this song? How come you're not promoting this? And they, they came back to him and said, you know, we're too scared about his mental health to promote any of this stuff because whenever things get too exciting and big and all that stuff, he starts to freak out. So basically what, you know, I learned from him and even my management at the time is they started to neglect me because they were afraid that I was going to freak out. And, you know, I burned them kind of bad because I leaked my own music and all that shit. And they started neglecting me. So as soon as that happened, I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. I asked if I could leave. You know, once you have, you know, if you don't have any big songs with the label, they're, they're happy to let you go. But if you have a song, like, I feel like I'm drowning, that still gets stinked all the time. And, you know, you mm -hmm. still have a bunch of other music in the bank that's not been released that they want to release. It's a little hard. Um, I basically had to kind of threaten them, um, you know, being like, if you, if you don't let me out of this, I'm going to tell people, you know, the fact that you like purposely are neglecting me because I have mental health problems. Because, you know, they posture with all this like fake, you know, like woke stuff, even though they're full of shit. And it's like, um, you know, that kind of happened. And, you know, they, they, they let me out. Um, and uh, that was like one of the happiest days of my life to be released from Republic Records because now I own all my songs. And, uh, you know, I, you know, it's just, uh, it's a way more wonderful experience. I can release stuff whenever I want. I, you know, I signed a distribution deal for only one album at a time, uh, you know, um, they're in AWOL, the distribution company I'm working with is great, super attentive. You know, they sent me a bottle of champagne for when the album came out. You know, even when I hit number one on radio with Republic, they didn't send me anything. I don't think anyone even fucking sent me a message. So it's like, you know, I, I, I tell young artists, any friends of mine who ask, like, don't, why the hell would you sign with a major label, especially not anyone under the university? And the negatives far outweigh any positives. Uh, your creativity will be locked up and commodified in a box by like this, you know, you know, and, and it's a stupid fake corporation that pretends to be, you know, uh, you know, pretends to care about mental health um, and stuff like that. You know, it, it's just one of the most horrific experiences a creative person can be put into. So that's my opinion on that. <laughs> So I would love to actually ask you, like, on, on the topic of mental health, mm -hmm. you know, I'm somebody who has long suffered with very chronic depression, 
Do you think that those issues were inherently with you and then exacerbated by your experience in the music industry, having those limitations on you? Or do you think they were kind of brought on by, you know, the instability that is being an artist? Um, No, they, I mean, you know, you can't counter it. You can't say that the, the, the deal with Republic and all that didn't affect it because it absolutely did. It definitely inflamed it, made it worse. But my yeah. family has like a long history of uh, mental illness. You know, it's, I think it's genetic um, to a certain extent because I always had sort of mood swings and stuff like that. Um, but I would say, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely did exacerbate it, you know, tremendously because my healthiest outlet uh, was always creativity. And the second you start stifling that, you know, or making it about money to, you know, commodify it as much as possible. You know, I'd be like, I need to put this out now. I need to put this out now for my, you know, mental health, literally. And they'd be like, no, no, no. You don't know how to maximize a record. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, shut the fuck up. We don't need to fucking maximize everything. Just put the music out. We'll do what it's going to do. And I'm going to put more out and that'll do what it's going to do. And I'm just going to fucking write. Like, I, I, who has time to maximize the record? I mean, that phrase in of itself is disgusting. Um, and so, yeah, I think it totally exacerbated it. Yeah. I'm curious what structures since kind of transitioning to being independent um, do you have in place both creatively and in, you know, now you're kind of more able to set your own release timeline, set your own schedule. I'm curious, like what the pandemic has kind of contributed into like the structures by which you live in order to kind of maximize maximize your own health which is i feel like something we're not usually able to focus on because there's always 20 other things that need doing yeah um i think the pandemic definitely helped me like set my schedule a little more you know like um before the pandemic i would wake up sporadic times of the day you know because touring and you get thrown off by like time zones and all this and this kind of helped me like set my schedule I pretty much wake up at the same time I go to bed at the same time almost you know I have the time periods when I'm writing music and time periods when I'm working out and all that stuff and I think that's just like really good you know in so many ways for you know physical health mental health all that and I think you know weirdly enough the pandemic helped with that that was definitely a challenge at first because you had to figure it out and stuff but um I think creativity you know from a creative perspective I think it helped me get into like a much better workflow for sure. It's funny because you, you, you were saying how this idea of maximizing impact, you know, is it's a gross concept that everything is only judged based on how many eyes get to see it. And so do you feel like you and being transparent in your life experiences, it actually has way more impact on like the fans that you have and the community that you've built who listen to your music, who show up to shows. Like, I feel like that, that is like the biggest impact that you can make is that transparency and that honesty in the music and also one-on-one with people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just, you know, being as honest and forthright with your fans, I mean, you know, all that, that's how you build a long-term lifelong, you know, fan, you know, fanship, but more importantly, you know, friendship with those fans. Like, you know, even though you may not know them in person, you know, you end up really starting to care about them and they really end up starting to care about you. And if everything's fake and made up, and you know, you know, positioned to have maximum impact when your album comes out and everything works like that, you know, you don't really build that kind of relationship with them. And, you know, 
art's the long game. You know, music's the long game. It's more important to me to, you know, still be playing a thousand cap, two thousand cap rooms when I'm 50 than it is to like try to sell out an arena and then, you know, 20 years from now, you know, no one cares about you, which happens all the time. I mean, you see that stuff literally all the time. And it's just like, you know, I, I look at it as like a long term. You know, I always wish musicians could be looked at more like as painters, right? Like painters have like these different phases. And when they're like 70, they're even more respected when than when they were 20. You know what I mean? Like and people wait that really long time. And I think um, musicians can do that, especially with streaming and with, you know, increasing independence in music. You can really build your career out like a real artist rather than, you know, something to, you know, let's capture that four and a half years of money making to the prime and then you know forget about it. You know what I mean? Disappear, whatever, which happens all the time. And it's so, you know, if you're looking for that long-term lifeline, long-term, you know, lifelong um, friendship and, and career, being honest with your fans is definitely of the up, utmost importance. Yeah, it's definitely, you're right, that like four and a half years of like catching them while yeah. like they're in their prime kind of vibe. I had that epiphany when I turned 30, when I was younger, that was always the metric. If I'm still struggling making music by 30, I'll reevaluate. Then I can transition. You know, that was something my mom really drilled in my head, you know, in my 20s as I was beating my head against a wall trying to give up. Right. And there is this sense that am I past, past the prime of my music making? And when I looked at it clearly, I was like, no, I'm just starting. Right. This is literally just the beginning, but we're so conditioned from like, you know, TikTok culture, right, exactly. essentially, <laughs> right? It's like one in a billion, you're gonna go viral, and then what? There's no foundation, there's no real substance. You can't fill a room, you can't have a community to share it with. Exactly, yeah. Now that's the kiss of death, you know? You'd, I'd rather have like, you know, a bunch of small, moderately performing songs that my fans really love than one hit that, you know, you're a mystery to all the people who like it and they move on to the next thing as soon as possible. And, you know, your career is wrapped up in however long the life cycle of that song is or even two songs, if you're lucky. You know, I do think, I think we're, we are approaching um, a new era in music where musicians, you know, if you're making stuff that's like, you know, has real integrity, uh, and real timelessness to it, your career can be like that of a painter, you know, where you're bigger and more respected at 45 than you were at 25. And, you know, you didn't have any huge hits in between, but you just slowly built your fan base and treated it like a long game and respected, you know, you know, the power of time and um, just let it roll like that. So, yeah, I'm glad, you know, first off, I'm glad you didn't have to give up by the time you turned 30 because you had success and you have success. But second off, you know, even if you hadn't, I would still tell you just to keep going, you know, just keep moving. That's what I would say to, you know, anybody. Yeah, I think that what you just described, this, you know, really long game is something that is really, people are starting to grasp more. And I think that is like a, a benefit of, like you said, of streaming and what some call, you know, the creative middle class, where right. like you no longer have to be Beyonce status in order to make a living making music. There are a lot of artists that you and I have never heard of that are sitting and making really comfortable six-figure salaries, right. yeah. creating what they want and, and providing that to their niche communities and building a foundation. We're in an ideal world, like you said. And you have a song that pops off 
But your your whole career isn't dependent on this that viral success. Exactly. Because yep. you can always come down to the bottom floor with your people. Right. That's exactly right. That, and that's this is a new thing. Uh, you know, I think uh, no one's old enough, you know, yet to to really show how this works. But I think it will be a new model twenty years from now when they see musicians, like you said, surviving on a very comfortable six figure salary every year with their fans and creating art like real art with integrity and honest music and you know i think it's the start of something really beautiful um you know that was gifted to us partly by streaming you know because you don't need to have like back in the 80s a huge hit and cds needed to be on the shelf or cassettes need to be on the shelf and then as soon as they're gone how the hell are you listen to it you know what i mean or rely on radio god god for sake <laughs> radio um so I think we're approaching that point. I think we're in that point now. And yeah, it's a long game and just being honest and creating good stuff. And I really think you're just set to go if you do that. So my question is, now that you're independent, do you have plans? And if you do have plans, how? Um, what's the possibility that those plans are going to change kind of with whatever whim you have to release music? There is a hundred percent possibility that the <laughs> change. Uh, they change every day, you know. And I think that's the beautiful uh, thing about it. You don't have to be in some corporate structure where every change needs to be go through a line of people to like, you know, actually be approved. You know, I I change it every day. We go with the flow, and you know, it it feels great. You wake up every day, and you're like, if I want to change my mind on this creative decision, I can. And and you know, I, I love that. Yeah, I feel like what what I've realized in like just, you know, the years of being independent, it's like half of my job is is music and half is just like creative problem solving. It's it's seeing the problems before they happen or you know, and and being able to quickly pivot, I think is key. Right. You know, yeah. and every once in a while my pivots are wrong. And like, that's totally cool because there's always another song. Yeah. And you can always pivot back whenever you want. Like as long as you're not held in a box, you can move around as much as possible and you'll always be okay. So I, I think that's the beauty of this. And yeah, I'm glad you feel the same thing. You know, every independent artist I talk to, um, especially ones who, you know, may have worked with a major before say the same thing. I mean, it's just, it's a really beautiful, beautiful thing um, to have you know it, you really control your own life and your own destiny and I like how you said if you pivot wrong you know there's always another song and you can always change course and that's true you know you don't have a group of like businessmen saying no no no, no. we gave you a chance you owe us too much money we're not like you know we're not helping anymore you know it's they they have no bearing and, and they don't matter at all and it's yeah yeah it's you know fabulous how hmm how much of being an artist is doing what you love, doing exactly what you want when you want to, and and how much of it is a um, feels like a a job and something that you have to do in order to kind of perpetuate continuing to do what you love. That's a good question. I don't think I can break it down into like a percentage. <laughs> you don't, yeah. yeah, you you don't have to. Whatever yeah. answer yeah. is good. Yeah, I just you know. Uh, just like anything else, you always have to do some stuff you don't love to do. Um, but at least, you know, being independent, you know, you can really pick the things that are only necessary. 
um, mm -hmm. and not like do random miscellaneous things that truly don't matter, but look good on the books or something like that. You know what I mean? So I think that's the difference, but, um, you know, you'll, you'll always have to do stuff that you don't want to, but you know, as long as you can make it so most of what you're doing, or at least over half, it is, you know, really just the art and really what you want to do, you know, you'll be a happy person. Yeah, I love that. I feel like that's always the, that's always the uh, negotiation, I right. guess. I'm lucky that I, I do kind of love the business aspect of it in, in some weird, like, really? you know, my, my brain is definitely 50-50 in yeah. a lot of ways. And so, like I said, going back to like creative problem solving, I view that in a similar way as like writing a song. Right. Like that's what songwriting is. It's It's like, how do I make this melody fit within these chords? And like, how, how do we get from A to B? Exactly, yeah. So I love that. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and like talking to me. Of course. Podcasting is, you know, relative. It's been a pandemic hobby, yeah. you could say. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I have one one final question, which is what advice would you give to an artist who's just starting their career today? Yeah, um, I think I said it kind of before, but, you know, my main advice would be follow your intuition always. You know, don't try to copy somebody else. Um, do what's honest to you. Uh, and, you know, success will follow in whatever form that it is. But as long as you are really putting yourself out there, you're following, you know, what's true to your gut um, and you don't give up, you know, you don't take little minor inconveniences and say, this is never going to happen. Um, or you pass some ultimatum you gave yourself and you're like, well, I passed that ultimatum. So this is never going to happen. Just keep going on you know people it's the people who stick it out are the ones who make it in the end yeah you are kind of always just pushing forward to one moment right exactly like one one moment of luck but i think behind every moment of luck is years and years of work <laughs> that, yep. that kind of allowed that to happen exactly Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded, and edited by me, Verite. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.